Welcome to episode 159 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast using, learning, and sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Whether you're a noob or a master pseudoer, welcome. My name's Noah. With me today are the Orcs Pros of Linux, Michael, Ryan, and Emma. Emma has been on the show before, a guest interview back in episode uh, 137, but today she joins us as a co-host. Emma's a self-described nerd, works for System76 as part of a technical support and customer service team, and has the amazing title of happiness manager emma thanks thanks for helping out today uh in zeb's absence so i guess let's start with you emma how has your week been what have you been up to give us something linuxy and cool that you've done this week i was really busy this week i actually did a talk at the colorado school of mines which is a local college for engineers and i did a presentation called open source all the things and i ended up handing out 30 different uh pop usbs to people that aren't all using Linux. So I was pretty excited to put that into everybody's hands. 30 new users is a win for me. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah I, I, I just, I, I want to know, I like knowing things, how things work behind the scenes. I always find that kind of cool. How do you make the pop OS drives? Is it literally, is there somebody at your office that literally like you get like from, you know, the branding company, there's a box of flash drives and somebody just sits there and like DDs them onto like, well, so we how have this work? awesome tool called popsicle. So okay. you can burn um, like, 100 USBs at one time. So we have wow. a little USB hub, well, a big USB hub, and yeah. it takes like maybe 10 minutes to flash that many. It's that pretty awesome. neat. It's very fast. That's really cool. Yeah. DD with a GUI, basically. Okay. Well, it's that's kind of, really what cool. it feels like. See, now I know how System76 makes flash drives. See, that's exciting. I'm glad I learned that. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Ryan. Yeah. But you also, you? you can't just skip over the awesome name of Popsicle. I and mean, that's just fantastic. That's true. The yeah. logo's adorable too. It's like a really know me popsicle icon. <laughs> yeah. One more thing. So I'm organizing this conference, uh, Rocky Mountain Linux Fest, and we uh, we're gonna do it in August of 2021. So we actually got our logo completed this week. Um, our friend Cheese Bacon created a really awesome logo with mountains. Nice. And um, we secured our venue, which is on a college campus downtown. So we're pretty much, we're going to start promoting it pretty soon. And I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. Because we don't really have a Linux Fest in the middle of the country, but there's one like on each side. So, you know, if you follow System76 and you on Twitter, you'll see that you guys are constantly doing local community events. And I have to believe that that stems from kind of the history of System76, that you go about this grassroots approach at growth versus maybe mega advertising type stuff out there. Is that you guys seem to get a lot of feedback on those type of local events, that that's what people are looking for, that's what they're wanting? Yeah, I mean, we don't really need a lot of money to to get them going. We just need places. So we need places and faces, really, to just start spreading the word. So um, a lot of us go to local user groups and just spread the word, you know, in person. Um, but we don't throw a lot of money at it. Don't plan on throwing a lot of money at the Rocky Mountain Linux Fest because System76 isn't really funding it. They're going to be a sponsor. It's actually um, a few of us locally here. Um, one person doesn't even work at System76. So it's like a local user group run fest. Very cool. Nice. So, Ryan, what's uh, what's been going on in your world this week? Well, we had a fantastic weekend because we got to raise money for a charity we've been sponsoring on this show that the community picked, known as Free Geek. 
Now, Free Geek is an awesome charity that's working to help close the digital divide, fighting for things like rights to repair, which is very, very important. The companies are trying to lobby to take away people's rights to repair their own machines. Also hurts local small businesses as well. They're in there fighting for that type of stuff. They are educating people on computers, utilizing things like Linux. They're doing recycling and getting computers and components and things that people are sending to them and getting them either recycled properly if they're too old to use or broken, or they are recycling those machines, rebuilding them and getting them into hands that people who otherwise could not afford computers. The amazing thing we did yesterday, continuing off Zeb's 24-hour stream, is we had DLN Gaming Night. We played things like Golf with Friends, Zenotic, uh, Super Tux Cart, and CSGO. Jason from Jason Evangelo played from Linux for Everyone. And it's just been an absolute fantastic show up that we had from the community that joined us in chat to keep us you know, entertained as well. Because if you've ever done a live stream, having other people to chat with, and you know, give you material to kind of play off of and keep the entire thing entertaining throughout hours and hours of gaming is very advantageous. And we just had an incredible donation response. We have raised now $2,364 of the $3,000 goal for Free Geek. So nobody out there can ever say the Linux community is not a giving community. Uh, it's an incredible amount of money that's going to help a lot of families with the work that they do there. So we really appreciate the fact that the community came, watched us play terribly at games and still donated money to help a really important cause. They took pity on us. It wasn't like, hey, do this in the game and we'll give you a certain... No, no, it's like, if you can just you know start the game, you get something bonus. If you could just not die for five seconds, we'll give you money. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And also with thanks to Zorin for our Zorin OS, they, they donated Zorin ultimate editions that people could donate a certain amount during the stream. And they were able to get a free copy of Zorin ultimate, which was really awesome of them. That's great. Michael, uh, what's new in your world? Uh, well, lots of stuff. I'm actually working on a new website for destination Linux. I decided to upgrade the site from like, we've, I haven't probably touched in a couple months or so. And I wanted to be more similar to the DLN website. So they kind of have like a nice banner about, you know, the Destination Linux network being associated to it and just giving it more modern style and everything. Uh, And then I also did some consolidation work for the Destination Linux network YouTube channel. So we used to have a Destination Linux podcast YouTube channel. And then I decided that uh, it, it was a better idea to kind of like merge all the different podcasts into one so people won't have to like figure out which channel has what and everything. So the Destination Linux pod, uh, channel now is uh, the same address. You just go to uh, destinationlinux.network slash YouTube and it will just take you to the same YouTube channel. And it has all the contents like the new podcasts like Hardware Addicts and Debt's DL, DL and Extend and uh, Linux for Everyone and Ask Noah Show and uh, the Destination Linux podcast, obviously, and the the This Week in Linux podcast and everything else is also on that channel. So be sure to check that out and subscribe. So, and this is actually a huge thing because we noticed, yeah. <clears throat> number one, YouTube for us is not a huge platform. We get a bajillion more downloads in the podcast than we get YouTube. But we do have a bigger presence than a lot of the shows individually. And so by combining it, we noticed almost immediately shows like DLN Extend and, and others were getting hundreds of more views than they were previously on the YouTube platform. So I think it will be really advantageous for the network and help people understand how many shows are really a part of this now with Hardware Addicts, DLN Extend, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, all of these shows in one family. It kind of represents that well. I thought it looked right. awesome. 
That's great. That's really cool. That's fantastic. People want to check that out. They can go to youtube.com. Is it just slash DLN? Uh, just destination Linux. So YouTube.com slash destination Linux. Or if you want to go to the destination Linux dot network slash YouTube should probably work too. Very cool. Yeah. So Noah, well, what are you up to this week? Uh, I didn't do a whole lot Linux related. I'm still, you know, for better or for worse, we uh, at Ultra Speed Technologies, obviously with the sunset of Windows 7, the massive project that we have ahead of us is upgrading all our clients to Windows 10. All of our clients, if you, you know, have been have been virtualized and so they're either on Proxmox or, or Libvirt, or we've got a couple cost- customers now on um, Overt slash, uh, you know, Red Hat virtualization. And so the process of, of upgrading that, I've really gotten a, a bird's eye view of what it's like to go back into the Windows world, right? Like it's been a while since I've really kind of dug into that. Man, the amount of software activation that you have to do and the amount of time it takes to start your system up, you can have a brand new $1,500 workstation, SSDs out the wazoo, 32 gigs of RAM, and you install Windows 10 and add it to a domain and have all that profile redirection sync down, that thing crawls to a stop. It's kind of crazy. And uh, so it's really made me appreciate the simplicity and awesomeness of Linux. And I've started to dig into free IPA, which if you uh, have not heard of free IPA or if you've not played with it before, I did an episode on Ask Noah where I interviewed one of the people that actually works on the free IPA project and had him on and said, explain to me what free IPA is and how it works. And essentially, it's like after Active Directory, uh, it's, it's central user auth, but specifically for Linux, but it will tie into any platform. And so we're experimenting with ways that we can actually add Windows machines onto a domain and authenticate against a free IPA server. So hopefully we'll have more about that later, but that's what I've been up to. Now, it's interesting, Michael, you said that you were redoing a website for Destination Linux Network. Somebody else out there is probably thinking to themselves, self, I would like to start a website or I would like to host this server or that. How would I go about doing that? Well, we have the answer for you today on Destination Linux because... This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean, and DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with their intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You know, we read that, we talk about that, we never describe what that is. The ability to spin up a server right on the internet means that server and all of its ports are exposed right to the internet, unless you have managed a firewall in between that server, right? Well, DigitalOcean lets you do something separate. With their private networking functionality, you can set up a whole cluster of servers and they can only communicate to each other. And then you can have one that just talks to the outside world. That way your database server isn't exposed. You don't have SSH running on port 22 exposed to the to the entire internet. DigitalOcean gives you a nice landing place and a really fantastic dashboard that you can log into and configure all of that stuff. Now, you might think to yourself, how much is that going to cost me? Well, it turns out it only costs five dollars per month to get that and you can use their flexible pricing structure which means if you couldn't afford the five dollars per month maybe you want to rent by the hour well they'll do that 0.7 cents that's what it'll cost you to rent the server for an hour if you can't do that go take a can of bubbly and just go turn it in they'll probably give you that (laughs) 0.7 cents for that as ryan would say that's darn near free. DigitalOcean has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials. So if you don't know what you'd want to do with your $5 per month droplet that we are going to give you for free, well, actually, they're going to give you for free for listening to the Destination Linux show, you can search one of their 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials and go check it out and find something to build for yourself. You can get started for this with two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash dl. That's do dot co slash dl and again you can get started on digital ocean with that 100 credit 
do.co slash DL. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. All right. In our community feedback this week, we have Michael who writes in. Is it our Michael that writes in? Probably not because he would be saying something like, you guys are mean to Michael. Please stop picking on him. But wow. this person... <laughs> wow. This person instead writes in and says, I got into ham radio a couple years ago. So Noah, I know you're going to appreciate this because this is a hobby of yours as well. But I've been an open source user much longer. One thing I began to notice is how loose the ham radio community is with the definition of open source. They seem to be co-opting the term and using it different than the wider community. For one, they stamp their products as open source and even advertise them as open source, but have restrictions against commercial use. They even go as far to release software under GPL and then say in the README that it's not for commercial use. Here's a picture. So he sent several pictures of proof of their kind of multiple advertising and then what's actually on the chips themselves. The software is licensed under the GPL V2 and is intended for amateur and educational use only. Use of the software for commercial purposes is strictly forbidden. Provides more examples, but then says, so I'd hope you speak something about this because it's all a royal mess and makes open source look bad. It also gives a whole group of people a skewed idea of open source and the GPL. So Noah, I know you're into these radios. I don't know that you've tore them apart or even looked at the open source part. What are your thoughts on that? I uh, So first of all, ham radio, the, the thing that appeals to me about ham radio is the fact that it's the original open source. The, like when you get licensed, part of the licensing procedure is understanding how to open these devices up and take them apart and put them back together. And so, you know, early on when, when before now radios are available from China and they're super cheap, you can pick them up for like 20, 30 bucks. At the time that I got into it though, if you wanted a radio, essentially what you did was you bought a commercial radio that a company wasn't using. You opened it up and modified it so it would transmit on the frequencies that you wanted to. And then you and then you put it back out there. So to this guy's comment about, you know, they have restrictions against commercial use. The the idea there uh, is Motorola as a company makes a a commercial radio and they sell it for, let's say, four thousand dollars. Right. If it's a if it's a P25 radio, that's a pretty accurate price of what you'd pay uh, if you're if you're getting the base station stuff. When you have a group of people that say, we want to come in and occupy hundreds of millions of dollars worth of bandwidth and spectrum space, and then you have other manufacturers that come in and say, well, we want to sell uh, radios for these people, the federal government, the reason that they allow ham radio operators to occupy that millions of dollars worth of, of frequency spectrum is because they're not competing with commercial entities. They're not making any money. And so they get a special exemption. So that $4,000 radio that you buy from Motorola, you can buy for maybe four or $500 from a company like Yezu or Icom or Kenwood. And the, and the, 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 the point there is it's supposed to be accessible to everybody. It's supposed to be that anybody on the internet can just show up and say, I want to play with radios. I want to do that. And you can go pick one up and play with it. And, and so Motorola fought tooth and nail to say, and other companies did, of course, uh, fought tooth and nail to say, we don't want you selling cheap. Uh, you know, cheap radios that can do the same thing because you're ruining our market. Uh, and the, and ham radio operators don't have to contend with the kind of costs and licensing costs and frequency allocation costs that we have to contend with, right? And Ryan, you working in the industry you work with, I mean, you're all too familiar with this. What did T-Mobile pay 
uh, for the for that 600 megahertz bandwidth. I mean, that was what hundreds of millions of dollars they paid for yeah. a tiny little section of bandwidth, right? And they give that away to you as a ham radio operator because you pa passed a 35 question test that they gave you the questions and answers to ahead of time, and you paid 25 bucks. And then for the next 10 years, you can operate on 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 this bandwidth that they give you. So, in fairness to commercial companies that make their money off of this and are and are paying exorbitantly to the FCC for those licensing costs the way that it works is the people who make the radios at Yezu are are understandably prohibited from making radios that can work in commercial radio space because otherwise you would put companies like Motorola out of business and that's not fair to them because Yezu doesn't have to pay the same kind of licensing costs that Motorola does now all that said i i take objection to the to the, to the concept that it's not really open source because here's the truth the Yezu i'm trying to see if i have one i can show you but the the Yezu radio uh, that they make all it is they make the exact same circuit board that Yezu, the parent company, which is Vertex Standard now owned by Motorola, that the parents, the parent company makes uh, a, a given radio. And then they take the exact, essentially the same radio and say, okay, this is going to be the ham version of it. And they drop a little solder joint between two little pieces of metal. And that's what turns it into a ham radio where it restricts it from operating on commercial frequencies. So... All you have to do, and this is right inside of the instruction manual, take the back off, take your solder gun, heat up that little dab, flick it off, and the radio can transmit on anything. Um, legally, of course, you're not allowed to transmit on commercial frequencies unless it's an emergency, but every one of my radios has that solder joint removed because if I'm ever in an emergency situation, I'm permitted to transmit on whatever frequency I want. And since the radio is physically capable of transmitting on whatever frequency I want, um, I can do that. I don't see that as a, well, that's not really giving the power to the individual, just saying, hey, from a legal perspective, we have to do these things, but here's all the documentation. Here's the schematics. Here's how we built the radio. Here's how you can modify it. Have fun. Do what you want. It's your radio. Does it get any more open source than that? Well, is it more that they're complaining here about the fact they're using the license to say it's GPL and then restricting it. Maybe they should use a different licensing scheme instead of GPL yeah, and, and I, posting that there because I, I, so I guess, so, you know, to be fair, what the actual, with the software release to the best of my understanding, and I guess I, I should go back and look, I believe it says it contains portions of GPL licensed software, right? Like the actual software itself. And, and I don't believe is, uh, at least I haven't seen this. I haven't seen any any software shipping of radios that that is you know end to end GPL open sourced, um, and then they don't, and then there's restricted and and can't be used for commercial use. I've just seen software packages that contain, and I think that's what he's referring to is like the programming software that comes. It says it contains software that you know that has GPL and and whatnot. But well, he says that, that the MMDVM software is open. Oh, he does give us GPL. Okay, I, I guess I didn't see that in here. I still oh, he's, see he's actually in the chat right now. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So, so I'm not familiar with that particular piece of software. So that's licensed as, as just as uh, as GPO. Apparently, MMDVM, whatever that is. Okay. Well, I'd have to look into it. I, I'm not familiar well, with it. But. It's not even just that because, like, I, I think that the the grand scheme of the conversation is not really just anti ham radio because the open source term has been kind of adopted by people who are using it in an incorrect way. They're using it in a way to seem like they're open, but they're doing it for a marketing ploy where sure. it's not actually yeah. open anyway. So yeah, I think that that's kind of what it, well, sure. And it's like, there's, there's cases where uh, the term I like that people, the people, some people refer to it as open washing, 
where they're kind of implying that it's open source, but it really isn't open source. It's just they want to make it seem like it so that people would use it. And I think this is kind of what he's referring to. I don't know if this, you know, if this actually has anything to do with that, but they're, I think that the biggest issue is that this, this is happening and it's happening on big scales. Like even Amazon is doing things like that, where they start talking about open source and stuff that we're not really doing open source in some cases, you know, I I really, there's no way to adjust it other than having somehow, obviously not a lawyer. uh, So we need to have someone who is a lawyer to talk about this particular topic, but I think the GPL, the the power that it has is great that it requires you to re- release the source, but it doesn't actually have any kind of restrictions for commercial viability. So there's cases where if you if you release software as GPL, then you are automatically granting G, uh, commercial usage of that software. And that's why Redis, for example, people were just taking their software and using it commercially and not giving anything back because they didn't legally have to with the GPL. It, it's kind of like I get why companies are putting on this commercial like add-on, and I wish there was a it was a some kind of license that to basically is GPL, but also takes into consideration that commercial companies should be protected in the sense of like if you want to use their software to improve your stuff and you don't want to make money on it, then great. But if you want to use it to have a service that you provide their software for you your benefit and you give nothing back. I think there's there's there is there a gap in the field of licensing and in open source and free software that creates this problem, and yeah. hopefully someday that somebody could address it. Well, I think we're starting by calling it out and calling these companies out, and I think you can probably hit them up on social media and other things to put pressure on them to say, "Hey, you're not really following this correctly," um, and you know, call attention to it, and that might help some of these companies get a little bit embarrassed to maybe back off or find a different license alternative to it. And hopefully, you know, the companies that are being hurt by this aren't going to be switching their their license too much. I, I, mainly it's the thing because it's like having these companies switch their license away from something that's not technically open source because they are of trying to avoid this thing happening. I think that's the, the biggest issue that we have rather than trying to force people to, you know, just accept the GPL as is. We need to have something that pro- allows them to have some kind of commercial you know, protection in some way. I think the ham radio community and the Linux community have a lot in common, which is why you find a lot of those communities intermixing with each other, privacy focused, definitely Mm -hmm. looking for open source of those companies decide, okay, well, based on your, you know, social beating, we're just going to go ahead and remove all of our open source stuff. I think they'll just kill their own business because most of the people are just going to go find the vendor that does have an open source alternative, especially in that community. Oh yeah, for sure. Ziggy writes in to say, hi, guys, have only recently discovered your podcast, but I must say so far, I like what I hear. I'm writing to you to see if you have some advice for my FreeNAS box. Noah seems to have some experience with FreeNAS, and I run a FreeNAS server at home, mainly for media, but also for some backup purposes and for my main Windows and Linux machines. I'd like to be able to securely access my files remotely, but I haven't found the best solution. I kind of have a workaround. I've installed Linux on a FreeNAS VM. Then I team viewer into the distro via my team viewer and then SSH into my data pools. Someone recommended no machine and I have yet to explore that option. 
Uh, two other options I see for FreeNAS plugging in SyncThing and OwnCloud. I wonder what Noah thinks would be best or to make any other recommendations regards Ziggy. So first of all, what I would tell you is you want to approach this problem by first defining your goals, right? What is it you're trying to do? Are you trying to have your data accessible everywhere or are you trying to have your data replicated everywhere? If the answer is the latter, you want your data replicated everywhere, then I would look at something certainly like SyncThing or like C-File. If, if your goal is to have access to one one data set, but have access to the data set everywhere. There's really only one good way to do that, and that is with a VPN. And the reason that you do it with a VPN is this. FreeNAS is not designed, Samba, NFS, all of these file sharing systems are not really designed to traverse the internet. They weren't built with the kind of security in mind that you'd need to send those kinds of, that kind of information over the internet, and so you can't really do it. So the way that we do that securely and properly is we put a jacket around it called a VPN and we encrypt those packets and then send a VPN tunnel and then we can send whatever we want through the tunnel and we can trust that it's secure. So when I'm sitting at home, I have my router has what's known as a site to site VPN back to my office. And I, I, so anytime I request traffic from my office, my router automatically sends that traffic across the VPN tunnel over to Ultraspeed Technologies into our, into our uh, server rack and delivers that data to whatever computer I happen to be on here at the house. I have a mobile client, the OpenVPN, that's available uh, anytime I'm on my laptop and I can VPN either back here into the house, which then takes a site-to-site -site tunnel over to Ultraspeed, or if I'm on-site working at a client, I can just VPN back into Ultraspeed. We have access to all of our data. So if you want a tutorial on how to do that or you want step-by-step uh, -step instructions, we have that available to you. I actually did an entire episode on VPN technology. You can decide which VPN technology is right for you, and then I have the associated tutorial and how to set those up. I will have all of that linked in the show notes for you. Nice. We love hearing from the worldwide community and we have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or video that may get incorporated into the show. Just send your video links or emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So up first in the news this week, we got some awesome news from the Linux kernel. They have released 5.5. We're, we're going to talk about 5.6 a little bit in a, in a minute as well. So in this release, lots of file system updates happened, uh, XFS, X, XFAT, and Extended 4. Uh, AMD also gets overdrive overclocking support on Navi GPUs. So any of the users who have uh, RX 500 series cards will be able to use this. And also another example, AMD has good brand names rather than super. It has overdrive. Yeah. There you go. And just to clarify, 5,000 series cards, not 500. But Did, did I say 500? Yeah, that's why you host the hardware podcast and not me. Uh, that's so, true. Uh, Thunderbolt three support for Apple fans is there. So Noah, you should pay attention to that one. Uh, Intel Tiger Lake improvements and uh, better support for Raspberry Pi four, Nano Pi, and Yugu's AM six boards. That's I think at the ARM world, they're just starting to make up stuff. Like, yeah. how is that a name? Like, Ugu's. Ugu's. Is that like Ugg Boots version of a Raspberry Pi? Like, what? What is this? Yeah, it's it's a that's an interesting name for sure. Uh, yeah. HW Mon can now tell you the temperatures of NVMe drives, which is nice. Uh, Thank goodness. Yeah, Logitech Z5 uh, G15 version one and two drivers have added, and these are keyboards, uh, sport of micro macro buttons and backlight modes and built-in LCD screens. So that's like a high-end uh, keyboard option, for, and it has built-in support for the kernel now. And there's also uh, many other things like uh, Chromebooks ha have better s support for like wake-on voice support and that kind of thing. Uh, System76 core boot users have ACPI driver support in the kernel now, so you can use your function key combos to change brightness and a lot of other things. And there's also a lot of other good news 
And for example, that this this release will be in the Ubuntu 20.04 LTS release. And they even might even get 5.6 if it gets out in time. But another really cool thing about the 5.6 that's coming, uh, so speaking of 5.6, uh, they're also looking at adding uh, support for USB 4 and WireGuard because that's already been pulled into support for 5.6. So there, you know, every single time there's, we've, we've, told, we've said this before, but every time the Linux kernel pushes out another version, there's always something super exciting in it. And also the next version has something super exciting in it. So like, I just, I, and if you haven't got update yet, uh, it's, it should be coming soon. So uh, just enjoy, I guess. I mean, how awesome is this though? So we have, we've talked about this many times about how, you know, these latest years of kernel releases have all been about hardware manufacturers getting support for their devices in the kernel. This has been the big thing that I've gotten on soapboxes about with, you know, individuals saying, hey, when we have these distros that are six months plus behind, you're missing out on all this. And a lot of people fire back and go, yeah, but I use a computer from 1984 and all this stuff and I don't really care, blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah. And yeah. assume everybody in the Linux community never buys a brand new computer. We're all using 10-year-old machines, which is, of course, the message that my channel tries to you know, promote. The opposite of that is, hey, there are new machines out there. They have fantastic hardware. There's new people coming in the community. And even people who usually use a computer for 10 to 15 years, eventually they get to that 15-year mark, which may be now, and then buy a new computer to hold on to it for 15 years. And all of that stuff, if they buy a new computer, they want it to actually work. I mean, kind of imagine that. So all of these things here are turning those functions on. But even more importantly, all the components that are getting add-ons. So the G15 keyboard, for instance, is a favorite keyboard for especially MMO players. Uh, those who play massive multiplayer online games because of all the key combinations and things that they have to have. But also professionals utilize it as well to create all the macros for Adobe or whatever product they're utilizing. And this is a very popular keyboard, but it's been around for a long time. People still love it. But now we have all the driver support built right into the kernel to use the backlights, to use the built-in LCDs. So when you boot it up. Now the Chromebook one cracked me up because it supports voice support. So your Chromebook can now listen to your conversations. And if you're using Linux, I'm hoping you're not doing that anyways. <laughs> but hey, it's there. Um, and I've got to give mad props to System76, and this is not just because you're here, Emma, um, but it certainly helps that the fact that we know you, you're moving and transitioning to Core Boot, which a lot of people have really been wanting, but you can see System76 also contributing to the kernel directly here, which is awesome. So love seeing this. I think this is the most exciting time to be in Linux when you see Linux kernel releases like this and all of the hardware that's getting enabled in them. So something I've been playing with this week on the video that Noah's still ignoring of mine, the Lenovo IdeaPad Flex, which is a fantastic laptop that I brought to my LUD group this week, and everyone was very excited to see it. I think I sold like eight of them there because people, people <laughs> really want this idea of a laptop that you can basically fold into a tablet that works out of the box with Linux. And so I have tried Endeavor OS on this laptop so far. I have tried Fedora. All of these work fantastic. And recently I saw this release with Solus and I immediately jumped and installed that. And that's what I brought to the lug to show everything working out of the box here. And naturally Solus had me from the start when I saw all of the work that they have put into Solus specific to AMD here 
which made me very excited because the particular laptop that I have, Lenovo Flex IdeaPad, IdeaPad Flex, anyways, is a Ryzen 5 3500U with Vega graphics in it, which we know, depending on the distro, can be very painful to actually get working because a lot of them are utilizing older kernels where this stuff isn't enabled. So Solus 4.1 is back on the map. They've nicknamed this Fortitude. And this release includes a brand new desktop experience, updated software stack, hardware enablement stack that includes things like support for AMD Radeon RX graphics, 5700 XT, going to work right out of the box here. AMD Ryzen third gen processors, such as the 3900X, the Intel Comet Lake and Ice Lake CPUs. So not just focused on AMD, bringing in the love for Intel as well, which I love to see, and the newer NVIDIA GPUs, such as the RTX 2080 Ti supported in this. They have the latest Mesa 19.3.2, which introduces things like the OpenGL 4.6 and enables experimental ACO shader compilers and improvements to AMD APUs and Intel Iris Pro graphics cards as well. If you look at this release in Solus and you go and scroll through the notes, it's going to take you 10 minutes to get through everything that they've enhanced. And I can, I just want to say personally, and I know there are a lot of people who've used Solus this whole time, but for me, welcome back, Solus, to the party. <laughs> I mean, I you've You've always been there and, and created something beautiful, but I felt like for a long while there, there was this lull of, at least in my world, in my little pocket of not a lot of people talking about Solus or, you know, really promoting it. But when I saw this and used it, it's, it's just gorgeous. And the reactions you get from even Linux users, like when I would boot it up at the lug was just, oh, that's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And it was out of the box. I haven't touched it. I haven't customized it at all. And that's Budgie, right? Budgie is just a beautiful desktop out of the box. But I was so happy to see how much work has gone into this release. Michael, Noah, Emma, I don't know. Have any of you played with Solus recently and checked it out? Not the recent release, but the uh, the 4.0 release, I did try it, and it's actually really impressive. So I, I look forward to playing it next, this next one. But the, I'm also really happy that this is the, the first version of 4.1 is the first version that has plasma as a default variant option. <laughs> so that is awesome and good job. They probably the did that just to get you to finally talk about Solus. You no, know, I've talked about Solus before and I know I actually, I, I'm not sure how much I contributed, but I have sent some, some messages to the people who work on the plasma version when it was in beta. And so now that it's in the actual full release, that's uh, fantastic. And I can't wait to play with it. So, well, here's the thing, too. You know, I am so happy to see another, you know, it, it's been out there for a long time, but I'm happy to see Solus making the news and a lot of people, even our patron chat, talking about uh, loving the new Solus and stuff because, and there's nothing wrong with Ubuntu-based distros. Don't twist my words, people. Love Ubuntu, love Ubuntu-based distros, but we have a lot of them, like a lot. It's nice to see something that's just not based on Ubuntu that is completely on its own, and that is also providing some unique features that are different. So it actually provides something truly separate from the other options out there. And that's what I really enjoy about Solus. And again, nothing wrong with Ubuntu variants or anything else. It's just we've got a bajillion of them. Love seeing Solus in here being brought back on the map. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that there, there. it is nice to have like an independent style distribution being made for that. 
uh, you know, there's there's some pros and cons to both of those because, like, you know, Solist some has it, sometimes people would say that has issues, but not having all the packages you want. But Absolutely. thanks, but thanks to the other things like snaps and snap packs and, and app yeah. images and stuff, it makes it a lot easier to use Solist. So that is a fantastic a, a method if you wanted to try it out. So yeah, there's I, I'm glad to see Solist back in the in the the news, and uh, yeah, they, I can't wait to try out 4.1, especially because it has plasma. All right, there is a new open source ebook reader. Everyone knows that the Amazon Kindle dominates the ebook device market, but privacy and open source advocates don't have many choices when it comes to carrying their books with them on a single device, but that may change. Joey Castillo is working on an open source ebook reader named OpenBook. The device aims to be a hackable device, and you can either build it yourself with a soldering iron or purchase a pre built version in the near future from DigiKey. The specs of the device are 4.2 inch, 400 by 300 pixel e-paper display, um, an ARM Cortex M4 32-bit processor, seven buttons for navigation. Um, you guys got to look at this because the buttons are interesting. Yeah. Um, status status LED lights, a micro SD card reader, and a headphone jack. And Joey Castillo has some videos he's posted of features like voice commands working. And the device appears to be quite responsive and looks like a solid device. So no price just yet, but hopefully in a few months, you'll be able to start ordering yours. And the good news is you can track the progress since it's open source or even get involved on their GitHub page. I am so excited about this. So I I can't stand Amazon products for privacy reasons. And while they do have the best prices, not only on their devices, frankly, but also on their books, they have clubs and things that you join. And basically you get to rent books from other people. You get to rent books from libraries. They have all of these programs where they have monopolized the entire ebook market. Everybody else, there used to be a bunch of competition. Pretty much every bookstore had their own version. Now the only real competition for Kindle out there, if you want to call it that, is Kobo. And you know they're not really truly open source out there. This is just to me, the Pine 64 answer for an open source community to ebook, which yeah. is, hey, we're going to get you this kit. You can, you know, solder this device together yourself, which is something I love. And I love doing it with my kids. I order these little kits off of Amazon that allow you to make little radios, LCD screens, even little games, because I think it's an important skill when we talk about rights to repair, to also teach kids and, and adults for that matter, how to repair all these components versus just throwing them into uh, the garbage. And so I like the idea you can build it, but those who don't have time, you can just wait and they're going to have a pre-built version that you can build yourself. But it comes with a very responsive, beautiful, that e-ink screen on there. The device that they're showing off here looks, you know, very functional, good enough screen for the pixel density on the e-paper that they're using. Pretty mm -hmm. solid specs on this. I'm very excited to have an e-reader that I know is not going to be recording every single thing that I'm doing while I'm using it. And I like the hackability of this. Uh, this, to me, again, reminds me of like a Pine 64. This is an announcement I'd expect to have seen from them. Yeah, this is a, a really cool, uh, a really cool project that they're doing. And they also got the the funding for a certain, like a small batch. They haven't said like how much the batch, how many batches they're going to be doing or whatever. But I think this is awesome because it, it, there's a couple reasons. I love the fact that it's open source and like every aspect of it is open source so you can make it yourself. 
And I like the fact that Ryan was talking about how he, he would teach his kids to do these different projects. And it gave me an idea that he could teach me how to make this project on <laughs> how hardware addicts. So that a, would be fun. Yeah. yeah that'd that be would a be fun weekend project. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love that idea. I've been looking for an e-reader for some time, mostly because there is so much stuff that uh, like text-based stuff that I want available to me on a regular basis. That the first thing that comes to mind when, when we go do server migrations or when we go uh, work inside of, in, inside of a client infrastructure, oftentimes there's a bunch of documentations that we have to have access to. And to, to, to circle back to the, the email we got at the beginning of the show, right now that process looks something like we spin up a VPN connection, we get back to our file server where we've got all of those PDFs. But I have always wanted, because I know it's technically possible, to have all of the, that documentation available to me in one place. Additionally, it would also be really nice if there was a way to input text. I don't necessarily uh, need a full desktop thing to be able to type out some notes or to jot some things down. And, and certainly when it relates to working inside of client environments, I definitely don't want that stuff on the internet. So if, if as, as open devices start to make their way into the mainstream, particularly as open uh, ebook readers and stuff like that begin to make their, their way into the mainstream, I think there's a lot of potential, a lot of potential. And I think that there are a lot of community members that are going to look and make these things do things that we always believed that they should be able to do, but never actually got there. Much in the same way that Sailfish OS is really the modern day equivalent of what the Palm Pilot should have been, right? It should mm. have evolved into what Sailfish OS is today. Instead, we have Android and iOS. So, you know, whereas the ebook reader is this closed lockdown infrastructure thing from Amazon, when I was in high school, I distinctly remember thinking to myself, hey, we have this thing called PDFs and we have these things called laptops. Why can't I have all of my textbooks in PDF? Why doesn't somebody do that? Why can't I buy my textbook as a PDF? And of course, it never got that nice to the point that I could just buy a PDF, right? There has to have special software and it's got to have DRM and it's got to be, you have to buy the special hardware made by the vendor, but we're kind of sort of there. This to me is the real answer to what, an e to what the ebook reader should have been 10 years ago when it came out. Yep, I absolutely agree. <laughs> Canonical has released a new service and box cloud. Now, you might look around the, the 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 landscape and say everybody is going to app as a service or software as a service. Canonical is kind of taking that to a whole new level. This new service is described in their announcement page as and I quote, a mobile cloud computing platform which containerizes workloads using Android as a guest operating system. So this product is not aimed at you, the consumer, rather it's aimed at the telco companies which you buy your phones from. The goal here is to allow mobile operators to own their own branded distribution of apps, circumventing the need to be reliant on Google or Apple app stores. It's kind of like cloud gaming services. The device is the power and the storage and becomes less of an issue than the phone becomes just the interface. It's just the thing that you use to access the software that you want to run. And all of the rest of that just exists in the cloud. The, the server in the clouds handle the heavy lifting, which opens the doors, allowing to more powerful app services to be delivered without worrying about specific device or what device the user has in hand. Essentially, they're trying to make mobile devices to be operating system agnostic, and everybody can use the apps as long as it's in their app format and their app cloud thing. The website states, imagine users capable of turning any given smartphone into a gaming console, a workplace device, or even an action camera at the push of a button thanks to the cloud. This also opens up more powerful applications on mobile, such as AR and VR, where a simple phone can become the 
the interface and the cost of getting into VR into the hands of users goes significantly down. Because remember, when you're talking about things like VR, no longer are you concerned about the processing power of rendering that graphics. Essentially, you need two things. You need input and you need output. You need a display to display what the user is getting, and then you need input for the user to input. And as long as you can send and receive those things in near real time, everything, all the processing power can be sent to a data center. Right now, tell, you know, I'm just going to replace cloud with somebody else's computer, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Right now, telco operators have priority to demo the product. It will be interesting to see where it goes, as Google Stadia and Netflix, Spotify, and Disney have done with their computers that you put your data on, as well as everybody else moves services <laughs> to other people's computers. Canonical is taking step to ramp up their own offerings on their computers. I love this. I cannot tell you how much I love this idea because it's coming from Canonical, right? They mm -hmm. are, they, in some ways, and I, I've given flack to Canonical on being behind, in my opinion, especially this year, in some of their decisions of where the market is going. Here, I think they're ahead of where the market is going. And risk is dangerous. Risk costs lots of money. I've, I've worked in corporate America for a long time doing business intelligence and looking at, hey, we think the market's going this way. And you take your best guess and you hope that the market's going to follow there. And all of a sudden you see the market quickly take a left turn and go a complete opposite direction. So there's a lot of money in ramping up services like this. But I do believe this is the future of the ability to basically circumvent Android and iOS and the ability to be able to use services that you can trust. Hopefully, the services they're going to put up here will be open source and things like that, that you can trust will be open source and that you can trust will have some level of security and protection in them, but also allow you, no matter what phone you're using, to utilize services like sometimes today, I, I carry both phones, but a lot of people are either stuck in an iOS closed garden or they use an Android phone, but there's an app on one of them that your friend uses that you can't use because you don't have that particular app and all of this stuff's going on and they're kind of converging that world into one. Number two here, the ability to stream very powerful applications that are GPU intensive, such as gaming from a server in cloud uh, is a very tempting thing for a lot of people. Think Fortnite right here. Now, I don't play Fortnite, but you cannot deny the power of this game. When people at work bring their kids in, I always see them sitting on their cell phone playing Fortnite. This game has just taken over everywhere. And, uh, and there's Apex and other things. So they're, they're, they're basically being able to play all of these very powerful games, but in a small scaled down factor on their device. But now you could get the full power of some of these games that you could be able to play that you normally have to have a game console or a supercomputer for. And you could do it right from your phone or continue like Google Stadia is promising, but who wants to use a Google service? Uh, to basically start playing on your desktop and then move it straight to your phone. Like, there's a lot of things they could do with this here. Now, I haven't seen it because it's to the telco operators themselves right now and what things that they're tempting the telco operators with uh, and be able to use, but I'm happy to see them kind of looking at the market. Mobile hasn't really been a huge thing that we've seen any of the Linux companies really get involved with until Pine64 came in. They had tried in the past, but again, that dangerous move of, being ahead of everybody can cost a lot of money. So they, most of them had scaled back and pulled out. This to me is a really good move on Canonical's part. And if it's pulled off appropriately, and I think, you know, could really set them in stage as being a big player in the future, if they can get their architecture uh, and get the right partnerships with the telcos to grab their attention. So you talk about the fact that it's using Anbox. 
And Anbox is a way to have a compatibility layer to run Android apps on Linux-based systems. Now, well, the reason I think that this is important because they're not making their own special cloud solution to do it. They're using Anbox to do it. And they're even talking about it as being called Anbox. I think this is awesome because that means that they're potentially going to be doing upstream support for work for Anbox and improving that, mm, ser that service. Point. If they yeah. do improve that, they also benefit not only just themselves, not only just the, the desktop in general by using being able to use these apps, it also heavily improves Ubuntu Touch and, UB, and the UbiPorts team. Because the, one of the things that people don't like about UbiPorts is that as a base system, it has a lot of value. But there's just some apps that you can't get with that system. And having right. Anbox, I have used Anbox on that thing, and it does provide a lot of value by having that there. But it's still an experimental stage for them. If there's a lot, a big push from Canonical for this, it has a lot of potential to improve Ubuntu Touch and anything else that wants to use Android apps on those mobile systems. So I think there's a lot of value that could come from that. I don't know if it would, but I think there's a lot of potential that it could. Yeah, I, I, I take a middle of the road approach with this. So I agree with you. If there's a company that's going to do this with uh, responsibility and respect to the community, it would be canonical. Where I think they're off here a little bit is is threefold. First of all, you notice the number one thing that people complain about the, the snap packages is what are the one argument against snap packages over any other, uh, you know, packaging format is what that canonical controls the snap store. And, you know, there, we've gone into the reasons as to why that is, but at the end of the day, it's something that makes people uncomfortable when you have a company that's trying to create something quote-unquote open and they own the core infrastructure needed to use that service, that product or service, right? And so this is kind of the same thing. It's 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 a great idea that, that we could harness the energy of data centers and then funnel that information down to individual phones, but again... If it was, if they had released a product that was, hey, you download this app or you download this software package and you can spin it up on your server, and now you can install these applications on your own Anbox instance, and then uh, you can then you can take your phone and then you can use those apps that you've purchased on your Anbox instance so you're hosting it. That would be one thing. My understanding is that this is just a service. It's nothing that it's nothing that you can own. It's nothing that you can manage. It's nothing that you can control. And so when I look at that, I, then my mind goes, I have to ask three questions. The first is, why is why is Canonical in control of my data and or my apps any better than Google or Apple in control of my apps and my data, right? At some point, they're going to go public. So it's not like we can just say, well, because we have good people in leadership now, it's perfectly safe to trust them with the rest of our data. The second thing that comes to mind is this. Is this really the battle that we want our desktop Linux company to be focusing on? They tried going down the mobile market, right? They tried with Ubuntu Touch. It did not end in success. UbiPorts has picked it up. They have had moderately more success, maybe in the form of user number of users, but it's still it doesn't even hold a candle to Android or iOS, right? And so I have to ask myself, would I rather them be doing stuff like this or would I rather them go back to concentrating on the desktop operating system, the thing that nobody else is doing, the thing that Microsoft is ignoring, the thing that Apple is ignoring, the thing that Google is ignoring? Everybody is focused on mobile. There's already, it's such an uphill battle 
to begin with. And that's not where I see the real value of Linux. I, I don't, I, I understand what you, where you're coming from, Ryan, where you say, well, there's a couple apps that are available on here and a couple apps that are available on there, but the vast majority, like 85, 90% of apps, if you just, you just go out, you know, any big major bank, any big major application, what do they have? They have iOS and, and Android. They offer apps for both of them. And so I'm, it's, to me, it just, it kind of seems, I, I, I feel seems like you a good 100%. solution. It just seems, like, it just seems it, like a solution nobody asked for. You almost sound like a rant that I've given a hundred times before, but that I've given up on, frankly. I don't okay. think Linux companies are going yeah. to be the ones that, that are out there are going to come back and suddenly refocus themselves on the desktop. I mean, we just got out of the interview last week with the work on WSL and Hyper-V, and you've got mm -hmm. these situations here. They do not see, right or wrong, the yeah. companies do not see money and an ability to monetize the desktop. That's not right. where they're going to put their focus. It is a complete afterthought. Everybody is focusing, including Microsoft, on the cloud. Canonical is looking at that saying, hey, there's money to be made here. And this is something that we can monetize that we're not going to get a bunch of people screaming at us. But, and I think Canonical's like, okay, fine. We'll leave the desktop and all that stuff alone. We're going to go over here and we're going to focus on the servers. Do I think that's the right opinion? I've given a rant a thousand different ways that the three companies you just mentioned made a trillion dollars, not because of what the work they were doing on servers alone, right. but because they started on the desktop. Sure. Uh, all the Linux companies, not just Canonical, Red Hat included. I mean, do you see them focusing heavily on the desktop? I'm not seeing major innovation well, here. The reality no, is the Linux desktop only focuses on the desktop. Like that is our that is how we survive as a company by yes. staying focused on the desktop. Which Linux is actually desktop. in my rant that I gave last week, the one company I sat out there and said was our hope for this is hardware companies like System76, who are actually are looking at the desktop, but your traditional companies that have been the desktop points are not focused there right now. Not saying they don't care about it. They're just so not focused I, there. The money's in the cloud and that's where. So I, I just, I want to, I want to circle back for just a second. My point is this is a solution from Canonical to a problem that nobody is talking about and a solution that nobody asked for in, and, and if the only answer is, well, it's a way that Canonical can make money. Then my answer, then my question is, can they, can they really make money doing this? Is this a really sellable solution? If you were sitting on a board and you looked at the solution, Canonical says, Hey, this company out of the UK who makes a Linux desktop that less than 10% of people on, on, on the desktop use have this thing and now they want to launch into the app market and they want to compete with the likes of the Google Play Store and uh, Apple App Store. If they can make the right case, mm -hmm. if they can provide some different services because we don't know what's in here, right. then yes, I think that there is a ton of money. I mean, Telco yeah, makes sure. hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, and can spend a lot of it funding a company. So if Canonical has some in in the UK or somewhere else where a mobile provider is interested in their service, yeah, there's a lot yeah, of money. They, so, and I agree with all that 100%, and that would bring me to my next point of contention in the open source world, which is this. Let's just say Canonical gets lucky. They ink the right deal. They know the right people, whatever it is, AT&T, Verizon, they say, hey, we're going with this Canonical solution, right? Stranger things have happened that Verizon inked a deal with Palm for the Palm Pre, which was you know, a tiny little, uh, a tiny little no nothing compared to Android and iOS at the time that it came out, and it was moderately successful. So maybe they do that. What happens, right? The big companies, the Googles and the Apples, go, oh, that's cute. Hey, they dumped a hundred, they dumped a couple million dollars to do this thing. So um, here's fifty. Can you go? Uh, 
do that. And all of a sudden, six months later, the cool thing that open source came up with all of a sudden gets ripped off and replaced with some stupid, crappy proprietary alternative. And now all of a sudden we're back to square one. But my point is that I think that if if they are onto something and there is money to be made, then the Googles and the Apples of the world are going to crush them when they wake up and go, oh, that's right. We can make money. Yeah, we'll do that, too. And yeah. And hashtag like, that's frustrating. tech. That's frustrating. Yeah, we should. So, Emma, as somebody who works for a company that does focus heavily on the desktop, what are your thoughts hearing all this? I think it's kind of a weird idea, but I kind of see where they're going with it. I think if they do have a contact or a connection already with a phone provider um, or network, then maybe they're able to offer some sort of deal that is drastically cheaper than Google or Apple licensing so they can leverage those networks or those services but they're going to charge companies like half of what google and apple are charging but these people are still going to get both services or the ability to have apps from both services but maybe canonical is going to be charging a lot less that's the only way i could see it actually making money and being successful yeah i mean it's an interesting point and we have no idea why canonical we don't have their inside information to say that they've had some talks with different telcos. Again, it's a different market than the U.S. market, which I'm not familiar with as much uh, in foreign markets of the different telcos and what they're open with or whether Canonical already has relationships with them, why the solution would be good. Uh, I don't, I just, I agree with everything Noah said. I just, I've given up on the dream that suddenly all the companies are going to stop and go, let's refocus our attention on the desktop that dream to me is for companies, like I've said before, like System76. I think that's where you're going to get your innovation for desktop users. I don't think you're going to get it from the big companies that represent Linux anymore. Now, with things that have changed, like Martin Wimpress and Canonical taking over the desktop experience and things, maybe this yeah, year man. I will eat my words and I will happily eat them, right? Yeah. Eat them yeah, all I'll and say up. I was yeah. wrong. I was completely off. Look at everything that they're doing now. But personally, and, 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 my view of the market is they've all moved off of that and said, the money's in enterprise. That's where we're going. The consumers in the Linux community will never allow us to monetize anything on the desktop. And this is our only option. I'll tell you this. I'd stake every dollar I own in that Martin will do everything in his power to leverage every resource available to him to make as much progress as he can possibly make on the Linux desktop. I believe that through and through 100%. Rather or not, that will actually carry through given the amount of budgetary constraints that he's going to have to work through and the higher ups and the, the process of making canonical profitable so that it can be sold and all of that, I guess time will tell. But I, I trust his character and his integrity to make that happen. If it's in any way humanly possible, he's the guy for the job, 100%. And Agreed. if he can't make it happen, there's no one that could. Yeah, I agree. And things I wanted to say about this particular topic, I kind of want canonical to... Uh, do some kind of service. I don't really, doesn't really matter, but it's got to be a cloud-based service so that they can name it Kanana Cloud because I think they're missing an opportunity there. Ah, look at that. The marketing 100%. comes through. But this is interesting too because they could sell services on the cloud to monetize the desktop through things like this, right? Uh, not necessarily through the phone, but everybody wants a trustworthy company to produce things like a Dropbox, to produce, you know, uh, things like, file shares and uh, chat rooms and all of these different things that we use that today we're forced to kind of choose between these proprietary non-private options in order to get the work done. 
uh, Word documents online, Office documents online. We have solutions like NextCloud and things like that. But for your average user, they're unaccessible. For your average user that's not sitting there uh, wanting to learn how to deploy servers, it's not really a workable solution. So I see that Canonical could use this as a way to leverage into monetizing desktop through cloud services that people would pay for. I would love to see this happen. Now, I can hear some of the folks in Canonical uh, that I talk to on a regular basis saying, oh, we already tried and it didn't work. We've tried it before. It didn't work. We tried to sell services. It didn't work. But I think everything is about timing. Uh, When I look at these industries and what happens, there are some companies that have been out there that have released products like Internet of Things products that I worked on back in the 90s about having stoves and everything else that you could turn on remotely. The infrastructure wasn't around, but companies were still trying to do it. It was too early. That doesn't mean it was a terrible idea. Obviously, look how much Internet of Things has grown since that time period. Companies need to think about not just what happened in the past, but maybe bringing those ideas back around and not uh, letting them go because it could be an opportunity now for them to monetize the desktop and yeah. make some money off of it. I also think the same thing applies to their their mobile attempt. attempt. I think they were just too early in that space. Absolutely. Uh, if they were to do it now, it would be so much more possible. You know. Okay, so the next topic is one I'm so excited to talk about. Uh, so thanks for Ryan putting it in this show. Uh, Epic Games... This is this is the way that Ryan put it in the show. And rather than just saying Epic Games got rid of Rocket League for Linux, he says Epic Games makes Michael angry, and that's pretty. Does it make you angry? It does. It is pretty much pretty accurate. Uh, you so, found it. Yeah, Epic Games announced they'll be killing online multiplayer for macOS and Linux starting in March. We don't know exactly when in March, but starting in March. So the features that will be left include local matches and offline play. And for those who are not familiar with Rocket League. It's a game that is 99.9999% required of online play. The offline part of it is worthless and stupid and pointless. Uh, You can play bots. And once you get better than bots, which takes like five minutes, then you need online. So the game is pointless otherwise. So previously, Psyonix decided to support Linux in 2016. And they brought the game to us, and a lot of people joined and played it, including myself. And I've been playing it ever since. And uh, that's it's 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 annoying because the company of Psyonix was maybe twenty people, and they spent the time to make a support for Linux, and then they were able to make a compatibility layer work with the X9, and then Epic Games buys them, and then eight months after that. Somehow, Epic Games, having multi-billions of dollars, thousands of developers, they can't afford to do it. Even though the company was independent, could, and now they can't because reasons. Reasons. Right. We can't afford to do this because this other company that we just purchased had already done it and proved that you could, but we can't now because we're going to upgrade our technologies. It's going to have new technologies, therefore we can't afford it, even though it's basically just making use, use of another compatibility layer. So they say that it's no longer viable for us to support macOS or Linux platforms. And they also have some other various different articles. And I had to dig around to find the different reasons. Like, because if you go to their actual blog post, they don't tell you why they're not doing it. They just say new technologies, whatever that means. They do eventually explain it, but you have to go onto Reddit. Then once you go onto Reddit, you have to go to a support forum section where they give you more details and uh, they say, we want Rocket League to be the best experience possible for our, all of our players, unless you're on Linux or unless you're on Mac. 
because those players don't matter. Uh, this includes adapting to new technologies, and they're referring to D DirectX 11. So the difference right now is that currently it's on DirectX 9. And a lot of people have said that there's there's no reason to be mad about this. And I think that's the most annoying part, is that people were talking about how you can just use Proton. It's like, yes, you could just use Proton. And I could still use Proton. But the difference is not because a Linux game or a game that's not available for Linux, a company chose to not make a game for Linux and that it's only available in Proton and they're not even supporting it. There's a lot of games like that. Like EA has a bunch of games like that where they don't care, but it happens to work in Proton. So you can go buy it and play in Proton. That's cool. And no one's really hating on EA for doing that. The problem is that Psyonix did make a Linux game and then Epic purchased them and abandons the platform because they just don't care, in my opinion. They don't care about Linux. And in some cases, you could talk about, like, this is not just a new thing. This is the thing that Epic Games has done for years. And Tim Sweeney, like, a couple years ago, said something about how if you wanted to... if you Installing Linux is like the equivalent of someone who doesn't like the U.S. political trends moving to Canada. It's... It's, he doesn't actually like Linux, and he doesn't have any, any intention of ever supporting Linux on pretty much anything. In Michael's opinion. In my opinion, yes. Uh, it seems to be like they have an anti-Linux stance. Like, they talked about how they want to they, they work on the freedom that they have, where they have it on Windows. But you don't have freedom on Windows. I mean, that's literally the point. They control whatever you do on that. You could change your settings of getting rid of the telemetry, and then they'll just give you an update that puts it all back. It's like you don't control anything. You, just, you you are you are g given the opportunity to use their software. You just get the chance to use it. That's it. You're renting it basically. So there's this weird problem that I, I see in you know various different YouTube uh, videos or some other podcasts and stuff. They're talking about how this is not a big deal because Proton is there, and I think that that's kind of a missing the point. It's not that they can't still play it. It's that that in order to play it. They have to use a, a compatibility layer, and that compatibility layer doesn't guarantee support. And they even say, when you go to their support section, it says, uh, you can try to run it through Proton. Not that it's going to work. You can try. It might work. Who cares? And if it does break, they don't care. So it's, it's just like, they're not removing support for Linux. They're abandoning the Linux gamers. And that's why people should be mad about it. Not because it's just this one particular game. It's because Epic Games has done this. standpoint, Epic Games is basically saying Mac OS and Linux represent a combined 1% of our total users. And no, 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 no. They say active users, but they don't explain what active users means. Is it active for a certain amount of time? Is it active in the certain, like in the past couple months? What exactly does that mean? They don't give the information because giving Calm the information. Calm down, Michael. You're yelling at me. This is ridiculous. Well, I don't know. Technically, you, technically you told mic, me to. Noah, when he was talking, he hit he his He looks mic. pretty upset. I think you should yeah. probably calm down. Can you down calm down? Bit. Okay. Okay. We didn't ask you to get this mad. Home. <laughs> yeah, so that was, I, think, I was lying. We actually wanted you to get this mad. Yeah, we wanted you to get that mad. Um, I, I loved your video, by the way. Check out Michael's video on this. He goes through the whole explanation of why this is a problem similar to what you did there but in much I actually, more detail i get more detail and i skipped one thing that i just felt like i was just going off in rants and now i'm going to go ahead and add it here so if you want it uh <laughs> there's there's a part where when someone talked about how like epic games used to care about linux when they had unreal tournament on linux i just want to point out that that's not true because 
Yes, it did work on Linux, but they all they did was open source the or not even necessarily open source it, but kind of open it so that Linux people could develop a port for Unreal Tournament. Epic Games did not develop that port. The Linux developers did that. And once they did it, they continued to use support for making new versions of of Unreal Tournament. So Epic Games did utilize that work done by not them. And then as soon as that work was not compatible with what they were doing, they abandoned Linux then too. So it's not like this is a whole, you know, all of a sudden Epic Games just did this weird thing where they just take a game and pull it away. They That's what they do. They just don't care about Linux, in my opinion. And Are you I think abandoning this like the, Rocket League? You yes. spent a lot of time. You were a grand champ or something at some point, which yes. is, you know, pretty much at the level where you, you would start training to then go into to- tournaments and things. You Not tournament level, but you would... No, I was. I, I played tournaments. Yeah, actually. yeah. So, so I mean, this is this was a big deal to you. Are you going to quit it over this decision? Yes, yes. I actually uh, already have, and that's the thing about like I. What's funny is uh, when this happened. It works in Windows Seven, by the way. Oh, fantastic! Because which that's is super n- secure. New technologies. Yeah. So yeah. the <laughs> the the thing about this is that when I first got this announcement, I was I was pretty much uh, like done with the game completely, and. Then a couple days later, I was I got a, I was on I was on Steam and I was playing the I was well, technically I wasn't playing the game I had the game running and I had someone send me a message like what do you mean what are you doing I thought you said you were done with the game I was like yeah yeah you'll see in a minute just give me just don't judge me yet so as soon as that was done he was like okay fine so then I post the video and what happened is in that I was what I was doing at the time I was just I was just so annoyed that I wanted to just kind of just make something that would be viral for the Rocket League community. So I made some machinima of Rocket League making fun of Epic Games. And that's in the beginning of the video. So you get you get that piece, which maybe people would share, and then the rest of the tangent of like Let 20 minutes. Let me translate for our community. Uh, for those who don't speak nerd, machinima is what nerds create when they're mad at something. That is the weirdest description possible. Okay, what it is is making a, a film or a movie or cinema from a game. I don't know why it's called machinima because it's not ma- machines. It's kind of like a dr- general term, but whatever. That's what so it's called. So glorified screencast. Yeah, pretty much. No, yes, because but there's also a script and there's also like effort to make the things work in the way it's supposed to. By the way, Michael, your hand gestures right now are very threatening. <laughs> you need to calm down. Like you're leaning into the screen, you're throwing your fists at it. I mean, just so, (laughs) so take some deep breath. Please, but don't calm down because we actually like you kind of upset. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it's, it was, it took a long time for the machine. It actually took like three or four days to get that part done. I know. And he Um, yelled at me when I was trying to help him create it. No, I didn't yell at you. I didn't yell at you. I just, I just, I just said, you're not good enough to do this. Do you have any idea? Yeah, I what? wasn't my my computer and, and my skills in Rocket League were not to his standard. Right. He was okay. Like, I want you to boost and then go up the wall and then fly off the side. <laughs> that's and not what's down that's, the ceiling. Backseat you're, gamer. You, you are making yeah. up more stuff. Exactly. I'm a backseat it's, gamer. No, it's not backseat gamer. I it's I'm the director. And you have to do what the director <laughs> says because that's what that's how you it have works. a stool that makes you a director yes Come on. exactly i'm just gonna oh, put one dude, i'm gonna, I'm gonna get one of those like director chair. they sit in chairs man they no those decide. are basically stools they just have like little They're weird fabric things not, like it's totally no. it's totally still every director i met knew whether he wanted to sit or stand it wasn't yeah, even yeah. a question that, that's, <laughs> that, that, they're the same height they're the same height whatever it doesn't matter 
All that matters is that Epic Games is trash, in my opinion. There you go. <laughs> so for our software spotlight this week, we have FreeCAD. FreeCAD is an open-source parametric 3D modeler made primarily to design real-life objects of any size. Parametric modeling allows you to easily modify your design by going back in your model history and changing its parameters. FreeCAD is what closing the digital divide, in my opinion, is all about. The alternative closed source version, by the way, costs $185 a month or, get this, a really good value, $4,000 for a three-year license. I mean, who wouldn't sign up for that? But FreeCAD is there offering everybody an entirely open source and accessible way to do 3D modeling. As well, in 3D modeling, goes to 3D printing, which a lot of people want to get into. But of course, with tremendous costs of software and things out there like that, thank goodness we have FreeCAD out there that's offering this as an open source project so that everybody has the ability, regardless of their financial situation, to learn and design and build objects. So I love FreeCAD and they've made the open source spotlight this week. Yeah, it's, it's also really awesome because I want to talk about the parametric modeling for a second. That's also known as non-destructive editing. So that is a very important piece of it. That's what I was thinking. That was very much like your non-destructive that you talk mm -hmm. about being an important feature that's not included in a lot of the open source design right. tools like GIMP or Glance or others out there. Yeah, anything that has non-destructive is has a lot more potential than the new one. It doesn't. So FreeCAD having that is a very important piece. Nice. Our tip and trick this week is, and I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce this, but XKey. I'm going to pronounce it. Uh, it is a command line jockeys utility, XIKI, or XKI as I'm pronouncing it, is a truly amazing, useful open source enhancement for command line shells. So if you've used BAS or ZSH, et cetera, it merges the shell in the GUI concepts, as explained uh, over at Linux.com. It runs in a text editor, so everything is editable and will let you save XIKI sessions in the text editor. You can insert a command prompt anywhere you like, and it will let you use your mouse in the terminal session. You can enter notes, you can expand filters, contents, directories, the whole nine yards. So this is something that it, it wouldn't go as far as to say like, oh, this has become a part of my daily workflow and I recommend it for everybody. But it's something that I've been playing with and it's kind of cool and kind of unique. And so I invite you to check it out. If you're looking for something kind of kind of fun to play with, check out XIKI as I pronounce it. Xiki. Xiki. I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I want I want it to be Ziki. Ziki. Me sure. too. Yeah, it's Ziki. We've dubbed it. Ziki. <laughs> we decided. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want a behind-the-scenes pass into the making of the show and an opportunity to chat with us live, consider becoming a patron. Our patrons help keep the show going, and they get perks like being able to access the live recordings and unedited versions of the show. And I'm telling you, if you don't get those, you miss a ton of show. You miss a ton of arguments that aren't safe for air. You miss all kinds of fun things out there that you don't get otherwise. So consider becoming a patron. We have two options there, Patreon or sponsors for you to use. Also want to give, again, a huge shout out to the community for the incredible support that you've given for FreeGeek as Destination Linux has grown and continued to grow through the years. It's been amazing building a community and now seeing that community come together to raise nearly $3,000 for FreeGeek uh, has just been absolutely amazing. So thank you again for your support, showing up to the streams, coming in and chatting with us, making it look lively. You got to have the crowd to bring other crowds in. So you brought new people in that otherwise wouldn't have been, been able to experience seeing gaming on Linux. 
course, it probably wasn't a great experience because how terrible we are, but also getting exposure to free geek and the awesome work that they're doing. Destination Linux also has a great way for you to become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums. Discuss the show, discuss the network, discuss the listeners, discuss with listeners all around the world in one place. If you're looking for a more live place to chat, then you should join us on Telegram, where we have well over 1,200 members of the community interacting with one another and sharing their passion for Linux. Head over to destinationlinux.network to learn more. And we love hearing from you. So please get back to us and provide some feedback or ask any burning questions you may have. Just send your video links or comments to comments at destinationlinux.org. And please try to keep the comments brief as we may include them in a future episode of the show. Also, don't forget to go to the DLN store and pick up some swag from across the network of podcasts and shows. We have a limited edition design that shows off all the founding shows of the Destination Linux network. So grab yourself a hoodie, a t-shirt, coffee cup. Many even claim wearing a DLN shirt is a life-changing experience. I think that's true. I think that's true too, yeah. And if you want some more content from us, then the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels. You can check out Ryan by going to youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he'll fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can find my content at tuxdigital.com, where I do a weekly Linux a Linux, a Linux news podcast, This Week in Linux, and other that, Linux-related content. That's not content. what that says, actually. Yeah, could I, you read from the notes exactly, could you read from the please? Notes? Could you no, not make cool. stuff up? No. I make these notes every week so that you'll read them and you don't and I refuse really to the show. I don't read them because it says tuxmystool.com and that's right. not What's wrong with that? that? <laughs> that's not the name of the website. That's oh, not Oh, I thought that was your channel. Okay, no, but here's the thing, it. to be fair, to be fair, mm-hmm. to be fair, it does, I mean, that does work, right? No. I think it, it does. It should. Let's no. hear tuxmystool.com. Who bought the domain? I dare one of you to do oh, it Tux right Digital. now. Digital, helping people use, learn, and enjoy. Oh, that's interesting. Did you actually? Oh, I thought you got a new site. Oh <laughs> my gosh, it actually does work. Tuxmystool.com. Please, if you is want it a big to picture, my... Michael? <laughs> no, it and it's hundred twenty nine thousand dollars stool. Here's the thing: he claims this isn't his website, but whoever did this put a lot of work into the yeah. Epic game kills Rocket League on Linux. Unboxing the Ubuntu. <laughs> okay, nice. Yes, yes. Site. Okay, you it's did too bad redirect. It's not yours. <laughs> Okay. Redirect. <laughs> well, whoever did the Tux My Stool uh, site, that's great. It's really good. I really enjoy yeah, this Tux yeah. Digital thing. This yep. is a really great looking site. You are literally my hero, Noah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Anyway, so speaking of Noah, you can find his uh, terrible, awful show on uh, <laughs> AskNoahShow.com. And uh, he does this weekly radio show that he t- talks to people about questions and things. Uh, who, whatever. Sometimes it's about stools. I know it's not Windows, and, uh, so it's not up your alley. Yeah, it's probably the one rest of the, of the Linux, Linux community shows really appreciates it. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure, whatever. It's the thing he does on Tuesdays that sometimes is interesting to listen to. You can, and if you want to call in and ask <laughs> questions about Linux or tech or stools or anything, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, <laughs> AskNoahShow.com and such. Also, linuxstool.com, I think, goes there, too. Anyway, so, Emma, where can folks find you? I am on Twitter at Social Happiness. Nice. Love it. And also, you can check out system76.com for more information about System76 as well. Um, Also, make sure to check out the other Destination Linux network shows like Hardware Addicts, Linux for Everyone, DLN Podcast, and so much more. Maybe even Ask Noah Show if you want to. Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.